Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Anne-Marie Koistra. I teach in the History Department, and I'm joined by... Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. This week, we have our producer, Sam Mulberry, on the show to talk to us a little bit about James Joyce's Ulysses. But of course, as always, we'll talk about a bunch of other things, James Joycean related, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Let me welcome Sam Mulberry to today's Bookish at Bethel. Uh, We are going to have a little conversation about a book that I um, have already confessed to not actually reading. So that is a good way to start the conversation. So Sam, you are a huge fan of this book. And Carrie, you started to read this book because of a trip to Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. But let's start with Sam. Why are you such a fan of this huge book? Well, I'm a fan because I'm, I'm, I'm a huge James Joyce fan and I'm a huge modernism fan. Um, so I, I'm trying, I was trying to think like what my, uh, on, on the video store podcast, I always ask Barrett Fisher, like, what is your history with this thing? And so I was thinking, what is my history with Joyce? And I think um, in college, I remember, I think, I think I first saw the cover to an edition of a portrait of an artist as a young man and the title drew me in and whatever the image was on the cover, which was not a picture of Joyce. It was like a painting of just some artistic looking person. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like a book I should read. And I read it. Well, I think I was interested in it. And then I started to look at it and thought, this is, looks like it's going to be tough to read. Um, so then I read Dubliners instead, cause it was written yes. by the same guy, which is, and, and there's definitely like a progression in Joyce as you're reading through. Um, and it's a fairly, um, chronological pr- progression. Dubliners is a very, um, the, this, the writing is far more straightforward than you get in Ulysses or things like that. Um, so I think I read Dubliners and I don't know that I fully understood. This is probably a sophomore junior in college. I don't know that I fully understood it, but I really liked it. And yeah. um, the dead, the last, there's like a huge yes. uh, short story at the end, the dead, which is one of the best short stories ever. Um and then I really fell in love with Portrait of an Artist as a young man. It is, uh, it is definitively in my top three favorite books of all. So it's actually, the funny thing is I'm so excited about Ulysses. It's not even my favorite book from him because Portrait is my favorite book. Wow. But uh, what drew me then to Ulysses was loving Joyce, loving Joyce's project, loving the challenge of Ulysses that I remember yeah. hearing like, this is, this is a really difficult book. If you thought <laughs> Portrait was difficult, this is a difficult book. Um, and also the fact that it's it's a sequel, right? I mean, the the you read the first chapter, Anne Marie. Who is the main character of the first chapter? It's Stephen Dedalus, who is the the um, artist as a young man yes. in a portrait of an artist as a young man. So Stephen is one of my favorite characters in fiction, um, and Stephen is a pretty in portrait at least is a pretty not very veiled James Joyce. I mean, it is a very autobiographical book. Um, and then I also loved the idea of, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this, the idea that Ulysses is this uh, retelling of the Odyssey in one day in, on the, uh, the streets of Dublin, um, or at least he's using Homer as an organizing principle. And, and so, it, I mean, it both is and is not the Odyssey. And, and the deeper you get into it, it's, it's as much Hamlet as it is, right. uh, as it is 
the Odyssey, and it, it's all of these different things. Now, why do I? Why do? Why after reading it, and I, this is probably I think my third read through. What I love about it, when I got to the end of reading it the first time, is I just uh, as you get further and further along in the book, you start to realize that every chapter he's changing his the style he's writing and changing the language. I think it was. Um, the uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the of the episode. Episode 13, the uh, Nasika episode, mm-hmm. was the first time I was like, "Oh, he's I I I picked up what he was doing before uh, before I read about it, and it was like that he was parodying like kind of romance novels um, uh-huh. of the of the 19th century, uh-huh. and then you know, and then by the time you get to the Cersei episode, which is this like 200 page play that's just shows uh-huh. up, at, you know, almost towards the end, my mind is blown, and it's. And, and I just realized as I got to the end that this is a book that has devoured the history of Western literature. And then, and, and, and it's, so it both presents it and it devours it and it destroys it. And I remember thinking, how could anyone write a book after having written this? How could anybody write a book after having read it? Like, it just seems like he has destroyed literature in, in, in the best possible way. Like, like, I loved that. And then I love the fact that this actually isn't his last book. He spends seven years writing this and then he spends the next 17 years writing Finnegan's Wake. Oh. And I was trying to think of, I was trying to think of, a, of an analogy for this. And I'm going to use a very weird analogy to think about Joyce. Um, are you familiar with the horse secretariat? Yeah. I am the, not. Yeah. In the 19th, it's probably the greatest racehorse of all time. Uh, wins the triple crown in 74, 75. Uh, and in each leg of the triple crown. So in the Kentucky Derby, it sets the, Kentucky Derby record, which still stands to this day, the fastest Kentucky Derby ever. And there's a pretty big field of horses there. I think that's like Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. And then in the Preakness, there's fewer horses and uh, Secretariat wins by an even larger degree, right? And that's Ulysses. And then Finnegan's Wake, there's only like three other horses that bother to race and he wins by 39 lengths. And because at that point, when, when you reach that level, you're no longer competing against the other people. You're competing against history. So, and that's what Finnegan's Wake is. Like, I have to say, I've read probably a third of Finnegan's Wake and understood probably 2% of it. Um, that's my summer project is uh-huh. to start to try to work through that. I mean, that is, that makes Ulysses look like uh, Dubliners in terms of like being able to understand it. So, so it's weird to say that I love this book. That's really hard to understand, but, but at the same time, once you start to understand pieces of it, I, I fall in love with the moments in it, with the characters in it. And I will say there are certain chapters that I read where it's like, I, I, I was telling my daughter, you just, I just kind of have to power through these. Cause I know what he's doing, but I've there like the, um, uh, the the chapter with the citizen what is that called oh the cyclops like that's probably my least favorite chapter it's it's a lot of like irish politics and things like this and it that one it's a long chapter and i kind of have to power through it how about you carrie i'm actually curious you know uh you were drawn to this in part by uh being in dublin and that's a that's actually a great way to kind of pull you i'm curious about your experience in dublin and what it and and it how did it lead you to to read this and have you read portrait no, no. So, and it actually took me until I was finishing. So I finished this um, novel on Sunday afternoon. Wow. And then I cracked open a Guinness afterwards because I yes, felt that was very appropriate having completed this. Um, so I had never read any James Joyce um, wow. before and just realized on Sunday that, oh yeah, Stephen Dedalus 
is a character in another play because I was trying to read because I've been reading this over the past year. And so trying to remember what I had read because the, the, you know, the, the primary Daedalus chapters are all at the beginning, which I started last spring. So yeah, no Joyce experience whatsoever. But when I went to Dublin last spring and that was when the pandemic was starting. Um, and so Dublin was kind of shutting down around us um, as we were there, but we went on um, a James Joyce Ulysses tour of the city. Um, and our guide spoke so passionately about Ulysses and he brought the book with him. We began in a pub where he bought us a pint of Guinness each and we started talking about it. And the only person who had ever read Ulysses on our tour was my Russian sister-in-law who had read it in Russian. Um, so it was a very funny crowd. Um, and, but I, I was fascinated with the idea of it by the end um, of our tour. And he read pieces to, to us at all of these locations. So we went to the place where, um, where Bloom has his Gorgonzola sandwich and <laughs> um, we went out to the house. And so we went to all of these places um, and it was just so fascinating. And so then when, when we got back to the United States, and things were locked down and I had to quarantine for two weeks. I thought, well, this seems like as good a time as any to start Ulysses. Um, and it strikes me, this is the way I feel having finished it on Sunday, like a marathon. Like I feel like I've just finished a marathon and I have such great respect for people who run multiple marathons, but I think I'm the person who only wants to run it once and be <laughs> proud that I ran it. <laughs> and Sam, you're a multi, a multi marathon runner. <laughs> um, well, it, it's interesting because my, I also read this for the first time, finished it for the first time after a trip to Europe. So I was in Paris outside of where, um, uh, Shakespeare, the original, well, not the original, the Shakespeare company that, where that published this, I was there with a group of students talking about, you know, uh, what Sylvia beach and kind of what this place was. And I just realized, you know what, when I get home, I'm going to go read you. I'm going to read Ulysses because I will say I read portrait as a probably 21, 22 year old and loved it. And what's interesting is that's about the age that Stephen is by the end. Now I have to say, I'm fascinated that you read this without reading portrait, because that is such a different way to understand. I mean, portrait is this whole book about Stephen. So when mm -hmm. you get to those first chapters, it's like, it's some of my favorite chapters because Stephen's my, is my favorite character. And it's like, I get yeah. to, I get more of him. So I want to get into Stephen a little bit more. Um, the, uh, my other connection with this is that my, uh, I guess I need to include this in thinking about Joyce, that in 1999, um, the uh, the Modern Library came out with its list of the greatest uh, 20th century English language novels. And it was a very problematic list. It was very white. It was very male. And then there were all these like uh, competing lists that came out. And I was fascinated by that whole thing. Um, and on the Modern Library list, Ulysses was number one. The Great Gatsby was number two. And Portrait of an Artist was number three. So Joyce had two wow. of the top three. So I was like, who is this guy? I have to know more about this. Um, and then my grandmother was a librarian. Um, and she is, she's where my Irishness comes from. So I'm actually curious, Carrie, are you Irish at all? Do you have any? No, Scottish. Okay. Okay. That's close. Yes. Not the same though. No. <laughs> but but my, my grandmother loved James Joyce. So, mm -hmm. so like we would talk about him and I, and I have to say like it, one of the things that saddens me is she passed away before I was, before I read Ulysses because mm -hmm. I never got to have 
I had, I've had great Joyce conversations with her, but not Ulysses conversations. With her. Mm-hmm. Sam, um, can I interject a quick question? And just, I, I, I know Carrie has not read this book, obviously in any sort of context of a class or, you know, with an English kind of person, you read portrait when you were still in college. Did you have any kind of literature kind of background that helped you kind of get into this material? Like, you know, I'm just, this is fascinating to me that you're just reading it as a college student, but not in connection with a class. Uh, well, I, I will, uh, when I was a senior, I took Dan Taylor's 20th century literature course. Yeah. Um, and before I, so I had finished the history major already, except for my senior SEM. So I had a year of college left. So I needed to find other courses to take. Mm-hmm. So I remember I went through the bookstore and I looked for classes that had books that I wanted to read. And Dan Taylor's 20th century lit course had all of these things. I'm like, I got to read these things. So, but I didn't have any of the prereqs for it because I hadn't taken a lit course. So I went, I went to Dan Taylor who didn't know me at the time. I've worked with him a lot since then. Didn't know me at the time. And I told him, it's like, I'm a history major. I'm a really good student. I will read I will read the reading list this summer if he's, if that's going to help or whatever. And he said, no, no, you'll, you'll be fine. You know, I kind of convinced him like, okay, this will be okay. But then that summer before I read portrait. So when I read it in 20th century lit, it was my second time through. Okay. Um, so I did read that for, for a class. Mm-hmm. And was it different? Was the experience then, I mean, how helpful was the class experience when you read it for the second time? Uh, very much so because I understood more about, uh-huh. Uh, about Joyce. I will say the things that hit me, um, hit me hard, hit me hard both times. And mm. I, in, in prep preparing for this, I reread portrait and I, and I will say that that those things still hit me hard. Mm-hmm. Um, when we, we'll talk a little bit more about por- portrait is like super, super important to me. Um, but I think, I think Dan Taylor helped me understand who Joyce was more. So uh-huh. less understanding maybe the novel, although he did help a lot with the Irish politics part of it too. Cause there's Joyce is very interested in, in uh, Irish politics. So he helped, he helped with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more helped me understand putting Joyce in context. So we read Dubliners and we read Portrait. And then we read little pieces of Ulysses, just enough to get me excited. Now, the interesting thing is, so as a, as a 20, 21, 22 year old portrait was, I, it just hit me perfectly. And I tried to read Ulysses and I got to chapter three. Um, and chapter three is famously, um, uh, famously one of the chapters where everybody gets stuck because that's where the first two are like, they're pretty readable. And then, and then yeah. all of a sudden Steven gets to Sandy Mount. Um, and it's like, what is going on? Cause this is when you're really getting into his head. This is the Proteus episode. Which is and the so, one, it's so funny. This is the one that got me that I was like, Ooh, this is awesome. Um, because he's talking about Aquinas and it's all. Yes. It's oh, and actually that, see, that plays into what I was about to say a little bit. So as a 21, 22 year old, like I, this didn't land for me. But when I read it as a 39-year-old, I was like, oh, this is, this is the stuff. And what's interesting is Stephen at the end of Portraits, you know, maybe 20, 21, Bloom is about 39. Yes. So it's like, I think I needed to wait till I was that age because I, I had false starts with Ulysses up until then. And then at 39, all of a sudden it landed and it just washed over me. Mm. So Carrie, I'm actually curious what we, uh, we, we can talk about Proteus. Like what, what are the episodes in here that really really draw you in? 
Yeah. So um, definitely I was most compelled by the the first three chapters I loved. So clearly, and so when I realized, oh, there's an entire book about Stephen Dedalus, I should do that. So I will be reading Portrait this summer um, because I, I just find him, him so fascinating. So I really did like, um, especially chapters one and three, um, and then, or episodes one and three, and then um, man, Cirque or Cersei? Cersei, Cersei, yeah. Cersei, I, I struggled mightily with that one. I felt like I needed to maybe be drinking a lot of absinthe and on some <laughs> sort of, like, in some sort of fever dream. So that did nothing for me. I will um, say Cersei, one of the things that helps with Cersei, if somebody's reading this and they're struggling with it, that's one because it's a play where the audiobook is great because it's, uh-huh. it is performed more. I love that you said that because that's actually what I did because I was having so much trouble and I have Audible. So I was like, oh, it's $7 to, to get this. And so it's Jim, the Jim Norton audiobook. I also listened additionally to the BBC a few years ago, maybe it was on the 100th anniversary, right around that time. They did an audio read um, condensed a little bit. So the whole thing is only like 10, 10 hours. So, I mean, it's still very, very long, but um, with Andrew Scott, um, who is Moriarty in the BBC Sherlock, um, and not priest in Fleabag, he is Stephen Dedalus, um, and it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I would highly recommend that. Um, uh, and so that was very helpful listening to two audio versions of that chapter mm-hmm. to sort of make it through that. Cause it was, it was so intense. Um, but I loved, I think my absolute favorite chapter. Was Can I guess? Hades. Yeah. Oh, yeah. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You said it already. Go ahead. Oh, Hades. Oh, okay. So this is when they're going to the funeral and then on, they're on their way to the funeral. Uh, what, yes. what about that? So, I mean, something that has always struck me about modernist literature that makes it difficult, or, or at least when I was younger, made it difficult for me to follow is how fragmented it is. And I knew theoretically that this fragmentation is, you know, post-World War I, the world is very fragmented, um, but I still found it not necessarily the best way to communicate ideas. When you're dealing with a funeral of a friend and these people are working through this, the, the sort of fragmentary approach struck me as precisely what it's like to deal with the death of a loved one. And it was, it was profound and moving to me. And I thought, yes, this is what like your brain is going all these different places. And you're thinking about this person and what do I think about the afterlife? And, Oh, look at what that guy is wearing. And Oh, listen to the sound of the cobblestones and Oh, just kind of all over the place. So that was, I think why I liked it so much. Sam, what was your guess going to be? I was wondering if Ithaca was one of your favorites which is the second to last chapter, the one that's yes. written like a catechism. Yep. Because yep. I thought exactly. about you there. Say, that's number two. I would say Hades is number one, Ithaca. And that was, the, that was probably one of the few ones where it, I figured out what, it was ha- what was happening as soon as it started. Because it felt, well, actually, I was confused. So right at first I thought, oh, this feels almost like, I don't know, a, like a Socratic dialogue with a series of questions. And then I figured out, oh, right, it's going for like a catechism idea. I loved it. It's so cerebral. There's no conversation. It's all going on in this catechistic way. I thought it was fantastic. Well, I, I will say that chapter made me think of you. And I told Anne-Marie this, and um, I want you to take this as a compliment because I really mean it as such, and I hope it lands well. But like, 
I, th- I think of you as a great fit for Joyce because Joyce was, uh, and Steven were, they were trained by Jesuits mm-hmm. and there is, and I will say, uh, other than certain obvious things about you that would make you enabled, uh, unable to be a Jesuit, like you seem like <laughs> a Jesuit, right? You like yeah. Aquinas and Aristotle. And it's like, there's a kind of precision and rigor yes. to the Jesuits that I know to, to the Jesuits, to Joyce and to you. So I, I feel like you're, um, you're somehow dispositionally predisposed to be a Joycean. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you found this and that, that that chapter landed well with you. Yes, I loved it. And I take that as a compliment. You know, I was trained for, for a few years by the Jesuits and I deeply respect their approach to education. I wish everyone would be sort of like the, the Jesuits with regard to education. So yeah, I, that is taken as a compliment. Um, so can I talk, can I talk a little bit about portrait as a lead up to this? Because I think yes. it's, I would it love makes, for that. Okay. Cause it makes me think about, cause I will say my, I love the first three chapters because they're Steven centric and because you find out what happened. So portrait is, uh, basically runs the very beginning. Uh, Steven is a small child. He's like a five or six year old, but he's sent away to this Jesuit school. So it's about him trying to kind of make sense of that. So even in, in the second chapter of Ulysses, when he's now teaching at a school and he's looking at Cyril Sargent, this kid who's trying to get help with class. And he's talking about how like kind of small and scrawny he is and how only like only his mother's love can like, that is a, this sort of reflection back to young Steven in there. And, and it's, it is about him coming of age which is among my favorite story things is like a good coming of age story is good. And it's about him wrestling with um, uh, kind of what it means to, what kind of artist does he want to be? What does it mean to be an artist? Um, And it ends up, he ends up realizing that there are things about being in Dublin or being in Ireland that are going to be difficult that, that make life difficult on somebody who wants to really be this expansive creative artist. So he talks um, in, in portrait, he says, when a man is born, uh, there are nets flung to hold it back from flight. Um, you talk to me about nationality, language, and religion. I shall try to fly from these nets. So he's talking mm-hmm. about, these are all the things that sort of, um, hold somebody born in Ireland back. And it's a, so this is a, this is a book, uh, not about someone in exile, but someone who is going to, um, put themselves into exile. So at the end, not to ruin the end of portrait, if that's possible, but he, I mean, he, he's leaving Dublin for Paris. Mm. So I remember when I was in Dublin, uh, we took the boat back from Dublin to Wales. I remember like staring out and watching Dublin disappear. And I was, and I thought about that at the end of this book. And cause that's what, that's what Steven does. Um, and another, another uh, sort of favorite passage from this, where he's talking about um, talking about art, he's talking to his friend Cranley. Now I need to say Cranley is based on a guy, uh, a friend of Joyce's name, named John Byrne, B-I-R-Y-N-E. Now, the reason I bring that up is because um, I need to, this is for my grandmother, that our Irish name is Byrne. So, uh-huh. so at least in the family mythology, like John Byrne were related to him. And he is, he's, one of, um, he's one of Joyce's best friends when he's young. So again, totally not true. My, uh, if you go to Ireland and ask about Burns, they'll tell you 25% of the people in Ireland are named Burns. So <laughs> probably not a close relative, but we like to think he is. Yeah. So he's talking to Cranley, who's John Byrne. And he says, 
you have asked me what I would do and what I would not do. I will tell you what I will do and what I will not do. I will not serve that which, no, which I no longer believe, whether it call itself my home, my fatherland, or my church. And I will try to express myself in some mode of life or art as freely as I can and as wholly as I can, using for my defense the only arms I allow myself to use, silence, exile, and cunning. So this whole thing is about, about Stephen. I mean, there's this, there's this great thing where he like, he goes to a Jesuit retreat and there's this long like series of sermons that he hears and he decides he's going to become a Jesuit. And then he, you know, decides that he chooses like life, the life of the artist over that. But what's interesting is so portrait ends with Stephen going off to become the artist he, he's going to be go, moving to Paris. And then the book ends. And then when Ulysses starts and you see Stephen in Ireland, you sort of wonder what happened. Yeah. And, um, and this is, this is also true to Joyce's life. Joyce leaves Ireland, goes to Paris, lives in Paris for a while. And this is, I think the last time he comes back to Dublin um, uh, is after this time in Paris. And then he moves to, to Trieste in Paris. And, um, and, and I don't think ever sets foot in, in Ireland again after mm-hmm. that. So his life is in exile. I think mm-hmm. I'm, I, I love sort of that, that idea of he's in exile his whole life but he's trying, but he writes exclusively stories that are take place in Ireland that take place in Dublin. I mean, Joyce said that if Dublin were to be destroyed, you could rebuild it brick by brick with Ulysses, right? Mm -hmm. There's even moments where, you know, in, um, in the, in Ithaca where, where Bloom does the little move to like get down, to drop down the kind of acrobatic move. Yes. Uh, Joyce actually writes his, I think it's his aunt to say, can you go to seven Eccles street and tell me would it be possible for a person to do that without getting hurt? Because it's going to be, it's an important plot point in my book, but I need to like, so he's, he wants it to be as accurate as possible. But at the same time, it's not, you know, there are moments where it feels like it's cataloging everything about it, but, it, but it's also, yeah. So, so I think that's really attractive to me. I got to just say it, the most lame thing right now, which is I have this like fantasy now where the three of us, after I have successfully concluded my reading of Ulysses, we all take a week in Dublin together and do like the full on, you know, in-depth uh, Dublin tour using Ulysses. I mean, that would be, that would be just such a, like my husband maybe would enjoy it. I don't know. Lydia would probably be a little bored, but um, I just think like that would be, and, it can, and I, and I'm of course already thinking like, would students want to do this? Could this be a P course? I don't know. Well, I was even wondering, so, you know, Sam, you mentioned that you had read Dubliners, right? That Dubliners is taught and Portrait is taught. Are there courses that actually try to make it all the way? Okay, there are Ulysses courses. Uh, From time to time at Bethel there, I think there are courses that read it, yeah. Okay, because I mean, that would obviously be the only thing you needed to read for the entire semester, just because it's so long and... Um, I was com- frankly shocked when I got to, well, it was the Cersei episode. Um, and I was like, holy crap, this is 150 pages, just one chapter that's overwhelmingly long. Right. And then he gets to, he gets to Penelope and it's, uh, I don't know how long that chapter, it's quite long and it's yeah, eight sentences four, long. Yeah. And it's, it's just four pages with no punctuation. Here's another thing, though, that I was thinking as I was even reading the guide that I received kindly from Dan Ritchie, as I told him that he saw me actually 
in the hallways with Ulysses, the book actually tucked under my arm. And he's like, what's the book you've got there? And I said, it's Ulysses. And he's like, oh, are you reading that? And I said, well, we're going to have this podcast on it. He's like, I have a guide in my office for you. And I said, well, of course you do. He then told me that Ulysses was the book that made him want to become a college, an English professor. But I was thinking as I was reading, even in the guide, first of all, I was struck by the fact that I definitely needed to read Portrait because I didn't realize when I just checked out Ulysses that it was in fact a sequel. But then the other thing, and I've talked about this um, in many different contexts, I don't know if it was because I went to parochial Christian schools, but my education with regard to mythology is like non-existent. And so I really feel like one of my projects this summer is I need to read an excellent translation of the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And I was cheered when I was reading the Wikipedia page on the novel to see that part of um, James Joyce's alleged inspiration was because he had read a Charles Lamb uh, version of the Odyssey for children. So I thought, okay, see, this is all very doable, right? I check out the Charles Lamb version because that just seems intriguing. Mm-hmm. And then I check out and there's a new publication, apparently a new translation of the Odyssey by um, a woman named Emily Wilson. I don't know if you've heard of this, Sam, this seems like it'd be right up your alley, but um, it sounds like her translation is quite interesting and trying to preserve the original or going back to iambic pentamic, a pent- pentameter or whatever, but I was like, okay, so I feel like I have summer reading that I need to do in preparation, even to finish Ulysses. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's exciting. Well, and I mean, the thing that sort of fascinates fascinates me about doing the idea of doing Ulysses as a course is, as Sam mentioned, it's kind of like all of literature, like yeah. every every way that literature could be written, writ, um, written every style. Um, sometimes in, te- I, I think it was Eumaeus that's written maybe in the style that Bloom would write if he wrote. So it's like intentionally slightly bad in terms of grammar, um, which is also fascinating. That was a rough one to make it through, but theoretically I loved what he was trying to do. Well, then you take an episode like the oxen in the su- of the sun and it's, it starts with like old English and works its way up to, um, uh, up past Dickens and I, there's somebody else after that. And then it ends with just like the kind of uh, language of, that people speak on the street. And it, mm-hmm. and, and you don't, as you're reading it, it, like you don't even notice that it shifts from one to the other, to the other. Yeah. Now I, I have to say this though, we're talking about Ulysses in, in, in all the great ways of like all the things that Joyce is doing. I want to say to somebody who's listening to this um, that along with it being all of these really heady things that in stylistic things that Joyce is doing. I am deeply moved by the people. I am deeply moved by Steven. I am deeply moved by mm-hmm. bloom. I am deeply moved by Molly bloom. Like, like he, it's hard. It's hard to read at times, but it's, it's kind of like reading Shakespeare. If you're reading a Shakespeare play, you haven't read before. Like the at first you're, you're struggling with the language, but then there are these moments where you slip in and it's mm-hmm. like, he grabs you and you forget that it's hard and you just have these moments of like, wow, I am seeing what Molly Bloom is talking about. I am actually in her head. In the, in the, uh, the Proteus episode with Stephen, that's where he talks about 
being in Paris and having to come back when his mother's dying Mm -hmm. and this sort of dealing with kind of the failure of that and like not knowing what comes next. And I mean, he really is a fail. I mean, if, if portrait has this sort of at least seeming heroic ending, this is sort of saying, yeah, that's not the story for him, at least not up to now. Um, And then, and and I, I love the, I love bloom and I love Mm -hmm. the idea that bloom is, is Odysseus is you is Ulysses right and that he is because when you think about about Odysseus Odysseus is not um he's not Achilles right if you read if you read Homer like Odysseus is a great warrior and all of these things but who, who is Odysseus Odysseus is the like the the craftsman is the the person who comes up with the Trojan horse which is this brilliant tactic you know it's guile more than more than power right and mm-hmm. um and 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 Bloom is constantly having to deal with the people the different usurpers in his life like Ulysses is but he's having to do it in all these kind of um all these kinds of interesting ways so like I really I I, f- I find myself as I get older being attracted to Bloom more and more mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think Joyce is too. I mean, he transitions, this could have been a book about Stephen and it starts that way. And then all of a sudden, Stephen, you realize Stephen's Telemachus in the story. He's not Odysseus. Right. Now I need to say one other interesting, I find this interesting. Um, so I use the name Odysseus, but this book is called Ulysses, right? The same character. One is Latin and one is Greek. Um, and the interesting thing is that Joyce, uh, I mean, he spoke, German and French and Italian and Latin and English did not, did not study Greek, which is why it's not Odysseus. It's Ulysses. And what I love about this is that, do you know what Joyce's middle name is? I do not. It's Augustine. And what language did Augustine also not study? He did not like Greek, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So a little, uh, little bookish connection there. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and he clearly did know Latin very, very well. Um, and I love that um, there there are two parts, um, and now I can't remember what they are, but sort of comparisons between what Stephen and what Bloom are thinking at the same time. And Stephen is thinking about a prayer in Latin, and Bloom is thinking "Hi ho, hi ho." Mm-hmm. Um, which is just delightful in terms of here's here's how heady this novel can be and here's how very base and sort of hilarious because I also I felt compelled by the characters Molly is fascinating especially since you don't really meet her until the very end I mean you sort of hear about her and meet her a little bit but you don't get her until the very last episode Mm -hmm. um but I was struck by the the number of times I actually laughed out loud so I, I found the characters compelling and fascinating but, you know, being with Bloom on his morning defecation session as he's reading the newspaper and then using it to wipe himself. It's just it's hilarious and so fascinating the way Joyce writes these deeply meaningful sort of meanderings on Thomistic philosophy and and Hamlet and whether Hamlet could be his own grandfather or whatever, you know, these crazy heady thoughts, but then also defecation and farting sounds and other such potty humor as my mom would call it. Right. I mean, and, and I mean, among the other things is that this is sort of regarded as perhaps the first book where you see people doing those things. You see people going to the bathroom, picking their nose, masturbating, right. All of these things are happening just as sort of a part of what 
what their day is, you know? Right. And even in Molly's like beautiful soliloquy, she stops to go to the bathroom in the middle of it, yes. and, you know? And it's like, like that's, and, you know, cause he wants to root it in, he wants to root it in reality, root the mythic in, mm-hmm. in the, in the, the day to day. One of the, the two of the chapters that I really love, um, as I said, are, are, are Proteus and Nausicaa and both of them take place at Sandy Mount strand, like on the beach, you know, mm-hmm. you have bloom in, in Nausicaa and, Stephen in um in Proteus and I find it interesting because one of the one of the like these there's this key moment in portrait that also I think takes place it takes place at the water I don't know if it's Sandy Mount but but there's that that he's constantly sort of drawn back to the water which is also makes sense if you're thinking about you know what is the what is the odyssey but it is this this great sea voyage too um and it makes me think of Camus love for the water as well there's something about writers that I love who are drawn to uh who are drawn to the to the sea? Somehow. Yeah, I will just um, add an unter- in terms of like the kind of bodily functions that appear in the novel. The copy that our library has is one that includes the uh, not the Supreme Court, but the District Court decision from 1933 that lifts the ban on Ulysses and right. deems that not a pornographic novel, and therefore it is you know something that can be sent through the uh, U.S. mail. So. Uh, so as I teach U.S. constitutional history from time to time, I thought oh, I could even use it in that class. So fun, t- fun times. Right. And I wonder to what extent, I mean, it's got to be the case that the censorship that was that sort of and the hullabaloo that surrounded this novel had to have created a buzz that made oh, yeah. it even more popular <laughs> than uh, it would have been otherwise. Yeah, certainly. And he's also championed by, uh, you know, by uh, some of the other, by a lot of the other modernists. I mean, Ezra Pound plays mm-hmm. a huge role in mm-hmm. the publication, especially of Portrait. Um, but it was hard to get to find a publisher for Ulysses. That's why Sylvia Beach at Shakespeare and Company finally sits down with him and says, what if we just do it? Mm-hmm. I don't think that Shakespeare and Company published a lot of things. It might have been the first thing that they published. Yeah. Um, but, but they, there were, because of all the fears about what if we print all of these things and then we can't sell them or can't move them. So, um, so he actually credits Sylvia beach as a, you know, such an important person for, um, uh, for getting this published. And, uh, I don't know if you know much about Sylvia beach and Shakespeare and company. Uh, so it's, it was an, an, uh, an English language bookstore. Um, I think Sylvia beach was American, uh, in Paris, and it became the like cultural hub of, of um, expat oh. uh, expats in Paris after World War uh, World War One. Um, I do a when, when we do our World War One trip, I do a walking tour kind of around that area and point out you know here's where Hemingway lived, here's where Fitzgerald lived, here's where Ezra Pound lived, and Shakespeare and Company's right there. Here's where Gertrude Stein's salon was, where everybody would go, and you could imagine you know, it's a short walk from Gertrude Stein's place to. Shakespeare and company. And this is where Hemingway, young Hemingway would go. And she would not only, she wouldn't sell him books. She would give loan him or give him books because she was trying to like, you know, raise up these, this, this generation of writers. So she would give him the works of Sherwood Anderson or people like that. Um, so yes. Yeah. So, so she's like this unbelievably important person. Um, yeah. I don't think she wrote anything herself, but she's this sort of nexus for, uh, a lot of the modernists writing in Paris at the time. Wow. That's great. That's a great yeah. story. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I'm aware of the time, so I want to make sure that I, um, I know Kara's like, Oh yes. We've been talking about that for a while. Yay. 
this is what happens when we have Sam Mulberry on. Um, so Sam, what is on your nightstand? I'm going to actually, I just got a book today that came out today. That's very different from all of this. Um, I'm, I, I enjoy reading like Michael Lewis books. So he has his, um, you know, Michael Lewis wrote like uh, Moneyball. He wrote, um, uh, his last book was called The Fifth Risk, which was about kind of the Trump transition and all the offices that weren't getting. So I don't know. I, I find him really fascinating. He has a book about the pandemic that came out today. So that's the next thing that I'll read. It's it, they're, it, they're not heavy, heavy books. They're kind of pop no. journalism-y books, but like, I find he's a, he's a good fast read, but I do want to recommend one other thing. Uh, Carrie, I think you mentioned Tom Stoppard a few weeks yes. ago, right? Um, I don't know if you're aware of the play travesties. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay. This should be on your nightstand very soon. Um, this is actually <laughs> Bethel's copy. So I will return it if you want to check it out. Um, Travesties is a play. I, I love Tom Stoppard. I love Irish novelists and Czech playwrights and Tom Stoppard's a Czech playwright. So that, that works for me. Um, he Stoppard loves to write things that sort of bend time and use historical figures. And there's this moment in 1917 where in Zurich, Switzerland, and this is, this is all true. James Joyce, uh, Christian or Tristan Zara, the famous Dada artist, and Vladimir mm. Lenin were all in Zurich at the same time. Um, so he writes this story, um, and it also surrounds the fact that Joyce, and this this is also true, Joyce at the time was putting helping to put on a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, written by Oscar Wilde, another Irish playwright. Yeah, uh, and there's uh, the person playing Algernon in there was a guy named Henry Carr. Now, if you remember the end of the Cersei episode, Pri- Private Henry Carr is one is the person who punches. Oh, right. Okay, so Henry Carr is a real person, uh, and there's a reason that he is kind of villainous in Ulysses, uh, because when Joyce was this is while he's writing Ulysses, when he was putting on the importance of being earnest, Henry Carr um, was not a professional. So the professional actors got paid thirty, I forget what the currency, we'll say pounds, and the the um, the amateurs got ten. And Carr was given 10 and he said that Joyce gave it to him like he was giving him a tip and he was offended. You know, Carr is this Englishman working for the consular office. So he was offended by that. And then Carr had also bought clothes to play the character. So he sued Joyce over the cost of basically a pair of pants. <laughs> so this becomes this, this, and Joyce countersues him for things. So they get, you know, caught up in the courts. So, so Stoppard loved this story and he writes this, um, this play, which is all about, and I think you'll like this character because it's about aesthetics. You get Zara's view of art through a Dadaist. You get Lenin's Marxist view of art and you get Joyce's view of art all being debated. And the whole thing is also a play off of the importance of being earnest as well. So there's like these crossing love stories. It's one of the great plays. Wow. And since you've read Ulysses, you will notice Ulysses jokes that Stoppard puts in it. Um, and if I knew more about, if I'd read more of Lenin's writings, I'm sure I would understand a bunch of Lenin jokes too, that I don't get. Um, I mean, I get the politics, but not the jokes, but it's fantastic. It's a quick read. It's like 70 pages, but highly, highly recommend. Oh, that's good. So then I have that and portrait as my summer, my summer reading. And Carrie, and, do you have and if you have- want to, rec- even if you want to not record it, if you want to talk about portrait when you're done, I'm around. Yes, I would absolutely love to because, like I said, I was so disappointed when I hit the end and I, you know, fallen in love with Stephen. Well, and especially after listening to Andrew Scott read parts, uh, re- read his part, and I absolutely love Andrew Scott. I was like, oh, I love this guy, and I can't believe I didn't read the prequel before I read 
uh, before I read this. Well, maybe we have an informal summer book club. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Do you have something currently on your nightstand, Carrie? Yeah, so as of, you know, Sunday, when I finished this, I like Sam was like, I need to go in a very different direction. I've been um, working, working hard to get through this. Um, so I, um, inspired by our guest two weeks ago, one of our guests two weeks ago, Nathan Gossett, who said he was working back through all of the Sam Vimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's reading Night Watch. And I realized, you know what? I do love Sam Vimes and I've been reading a lot of Terry Pratchett. So I am now reading Men at Arms, just started Men at Arms, which is a, another Sam Vimes, Terry Pratchett Discworld. Um, so very light very simple, quick reads. And there are like two and a half page sections as opposed to 150 page chapters. So a a little bit easier for bedtime, bedtime. I love it. it. (laughs) I have nothing currently on my nightstand because I was literally just trying to get my mind even around the concept of Ulysses. But I do think that I might um, get the Charles Lamb and just Mm -hmm. see what that's all about. Because I enjoy. Um, and apparently he also published with his sister and he's writing, by the way, in the 18th and early 19th century, um, uh, tales from Shakespeare for children. Uh-huh. And my husband and I were just talking about how in order to really be an educated person, you have to know your Greek mythology. You have to know your Shakespeare and you have to know your Bible. So Mr. Lamb apparently covered two out of the three. So um, I think that would be a little, it'd be a great place to start. Yeah. Anyway, um, Sam, thank you as always for um, being a guest on a topic that is um, not possible to really do in a podcast, but um, boy, it's kind of amazing. And uh, for those of you listening, you have been listening to Focus at Bethel.